Hello, everyone. Thank you for tuning in to Teaching Matters. This program is produced and recorded in the studios of WUB Public Media in Athens, Ohio. I'm your host, Scott Titsworth, Dean of the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. Over the course of the uh, previous 15 or so episodes, we've started getting questions in from listeners. And one of the questions that came in um, about a month ago, right before we started getting into graduation season, is that someone wanted to learn more about creating and sustaining interdisciplinary teaching programs. And so um, I look, I thought about some of the contacts that I've made over the years, and I invited in uh, two colleagues to talk about what I think is a uh, very mature interdisciplinary uh, and service learning initiative at Ohio University that, that also involves multiple partners from other universities. And so we'll be talking about that today. I hope that you'll be able to learn about sort of some of the benefits, which there are many, but also some of the challenges that one encounters when you're trying to bring together people from multiple disciplines, and particularly when they're doing project-based or service learning work. Um, it's really exciting, but it's also not easy to do. My guests today are Dr. Mario Grijalva, Director of the Infectious and Tropical Disease Institute at Ohio University. He's also a professor in the uh, Heritage College of Osteopathic Medicine here. And also Diana Marvel, who's the director of Ohio University Center for Campus and Community Engagement. Mario and Diana, thank you for being here. Thank you. Thank you for the invitation. So I'm excited to talk about this. I had a chance to experience uh, visiting uh, Ecuador, where the significant project we'll be discussing took place last year, uh, and seeing some of the results of what has been a multi-year uh, initiative down in Ecuador. Mario, if we could start with you, um, speaking from your perspective as not only um, a Ecuadorian citizen that's working at Ohio University, but also the director of the Infectious and Tropical Disease Institute. Can you talk about some of the projects that have historically been undertaken by the Institute in Ecuador that has involved Ohio University and other students? What, what are some of the things that you've done? Uh, well, this is a uh project that has been ongoing for many years and it's a, a continuum a continuum of projects really that have evolved organically by your, uh, by that what I mean is that they have uh, built in each other uh, in the previous projects and, and identified needs to research and then answering to those needs to educational activities research activities and uh, service learning uh, and outreach type of activities so initially, this project started uh, very specifically dealing with infectious disease research, uh, in particular with Chagas disease. Uh, this is a disease that is not very well known in the United States, but is caused by a parasite that causes severe heart damage and eventually uh, is fatal in a number of uh, people that are infected. There are millions of people, about 8 million people infected with this uh, parasite and uh, is a devastating disease that really rips apart the fabric of society in the areas where these uh, diseases present. So, um, when I started working on these uh, projects through the um, Infectious and Tropical Disease Institute, there was very little known about Chagas disease in Ecuador. So, I started with my team working in piecing out what are the, or discovering what are the pieces of the puzzle. So, we have worked in biological research related to the bugs, uh, social research uh, regarding to the communities that are affected. Uh, and these bugs, uh, just so your listeners uh, know, are, uh, are the insect that transmit the parasite that causes Chagas disease. So in order to interrupt transmission, you need to understand how this transmission takes place. Um, so that led to projects related to the other route of transmission that is uh, blood banks and blood bank safety. And so we did a lot of research uh, regarding uh, the prevention of transmission via uh, that way, and that then uh, led to uh, projects that are now more social type of projects where we are working with community members in looking for innovative ways to control and prevent disease through multidisciplinary activities. So the, the projects that we are working in are, are many, and the range goes from, uh, you know, very basic uh, genetic studies uh, and understanding the parasite and the biology of the vector to all the way to building houses so that people can be safe uh, from these bugs. How old is the ITDI Institute? We are, um, we were uh, established in 1987. Mm -hmm. So this is the 30th year of the Institute. 
And the activities in Ecuador are uh, about uh, 20 years old right mm -hmm. now. Um, so it has been a long road. And it, and it struck me uh, as you were describing it that uh, as a scientist, your goal is not only to understand uh, the biology behind how the parasite becomes vectored into the human population, but as a practitioner, you're also trying to understand ways to mitigate and reduce the risk of those, those infections. And what I hear you saying is that it, it wasn't just one thing, that you, you can't just solve the problem through education. You can't just solve the problem through building uh, different styles of housing. Uh, you can't just solve the problem by uh, changing some of the infrastructure in a community, but really it's all of those things, right? Well, I work from these understanding that disease is not the problem. You see, Scott, disease is a symptom of, of a problem. And in order to really prevent disease, you need to understand what are the roots. And the roots are always very complex. I mean, the people in these communities are not unlike us here. They do not wake up and say, oh, Chagas disease, right? They uh, wake up and they are worried about what to eat, wor about the kids' health, about their jobs, about their own health, about you know the weather, about their crops. So in order to address the issues, you need to have a deep understanding of all of these aspects. And you know it is very interesting and very satisfying actually to be able to pose this question to a interdisciplinary or multidisciplinary team because everybody comes with their own perspective. So mm -hmm. in order to work in diseases, especially these diseases that are related to poverty, you need to understand poverty. And the solution is not, uh, uh, you know, uh, give me a pill. The solution is how do I uh, escape this circle of mm -hmm. poverty? It must be holistic. It needs to be very holistic. And so I work with architects, with engineers, with uh, physicians, uh, with other medical practitioners, with sociologists, with uh, uh, university uh, administrators, with uh, you know everybody that that wants to be involved can be involved, and that is the beauty of this because you can find an angle for almost everything. So before I, I turn to Diana to talk about the service learning component, if if Mario, you were ha to hazard a guess, how many faculty and students do you think has been involved just in the Ecuador project over over its history? We have taken about 600 students, give or take, you know, a, a dozen or so, uh, over the years of, the, uh, of over the uh, duration of this uh, project. And these students have been from Ohio University and probably about 50 other universities throughout the United States. We have students also coming from universities in Europe or in uh, 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 universities in other countries in Latin America as well as uh, Australia. We have a a uh, student or two from New Zealand. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, Canada. Uh, and Canada, of course. Uh, and uh, in addition to uh, that, we have involved uh, probably about 20 or so faculty over the years, maybe 25 uh, that have come down physically, and many others that cannot go physically but are involved in the projects being uh, mentors for students on mm -hmm. providing advice. So. A large number of people have been involved uh, over the years in active projects. Now, in addition to that, we have had many visitors that have come and, and, and started dialogues and are... Uh, Including a few random deans. Yes, yeah. yes, very much so. And, and so projects are now on the planning stage. Mm -hmm. and, and the initiative now is growing to a, another sphere where we are looking into... Uh, larger integration between the partner universities we, where this exchange of students and faculty uh, really becomes part of the fabric of what we do and become part of the academic offering, that the expectation, and, and that is uh, something that we can talk about in, in a follow-up question. Yeah. Uh, so, so, Diana, something, I mean, just hearing Mario's uh, initial explanation of the Ecuador project, I think listeners can get a sense that there's a lot going on, um, yes. both in terms of the projects, but also the number of people, the, the various places that those people come from, both in terms of their physical home, but also the perspectives that they bring. It's a big project. Mm -hmm. And so it would be impossible to say that 
there's one label that characterizes what's going on in Ecuador involving all of this. But mm -hmm. you bring to the table a specific interest and in, in expertise in academic service learning because of the center that you direct. Mm -hmm. um, can you talk first before we get back to Ecuador about what academic service learning is and how it is sort of a unique brand or, or, or approach to pedagogy? Sure. Uh, and service learning can really be understood as a philosophy, a pedagogy, and a practice. And in the case of uh, academic service learning here at Ohio University and how it's really understood uh, with ITDI's programs is that it's an experiential learning uh, opportunity for students that really links their academic learning with service to the community. And, and service in this case is broadly defined, but also very intentionally with a mutually beneficial perspective. Um, that service needs to both enhance student learning, but also be something that is really of interest to communities and is supporting um, community-directed initiatives. And as a pedagogy, service learning also uh, requires that students really reflect critically on what they are doing uh, to really link what it is that they're learning in terms of the, the academic material of their course uh, with the service opportunities to the community uh, to really enhance that learning and to get the most out of it. In this case, the, the academic service learning, the service component of this is magnified in complexity because it's not in, you know, a few blocks down the street in Athens, Ohio. It's in Ecuador. So it's, it's an international experience. Yes. That, from my understanding, is fairly unique in the academic service learning world that certainly it does take place. But this program, I think, is so unique because it combines that pedagogy with the international experience. Is that true? I mean, is, is it fairly unique in the way that it is structured? Yes, and the program is really intentionally structured to be a global service learning program um, and really even moving away from thinking about service learning as strictly domestic or, you know, confined to the international sphere. Um, but the work that um, students and faculty and staff uh, are doing as part of the global service learning program. Um, yes, it's in this international context and it's really you know focused on issues that are salient to the communities where we are in Ecuador. Um, but it's also an opportunity for students to bring back what they are learning in those communities, like understanding cycles of poverty or disease transmission um, and health issues, and really investing what they're learning in local communities and seeing how what they are learning really applies, not just to what they're learning, you know, overseas in this case, but, you know, what their lives are like in their communities and how it affects communities where they live. Yes, I think one of the, when you, when you I mean, I, you know, I've been able to be a visitor and was very thankful and blessed to be able to do that. I think one of the takeaways that you get is that you might find yourself standing in a uh, a rural uh, community in, in southern Ecuador uh, and see, you know, the, the various issues confronting that community, and you immediately start drawing parallels to the place that you yes. live. The people might speak a different language, eat different food, talk uh, in, in ways that you don't understand. The problems almost remain the same. Uh, and I think that's a takeaway message that's really important for students to learn. Absolutely. And that's, you know, Know, often the reflections we have from students, um, you know, when they're taken out of the environment that they're familiar with, that they're looking through different eyes um, and seeing, um, you know, communities struggle, you know, with certain issues that are very prevalent in their own communities, um, and it makes it more visible. And then they start sort of grappling with those really, you know, complex issues around understanding those problems. Now, Diana, before I, before I turn back to Mario to talk about some particulars of, of some of the work going on, you've been involved not just as an administrator on the OU campus, but you've actually done work with the ITDI, the Infectious and Tropical Disease Institute in Ecuador over the course of several years. Can you talk about some of your personal experiences that might give a layer of detail and narrative to um, what it is that we're talking about? Sure, I'd be happy to. Um, I actually came to Ohio University in the fall of 2012 
uh, to study service learning as part of a doctoral program um, with Dr. Pete Mather in higher education and counseling. Uh, and my my first service learning experience at Ho- Ohio University um, was with um, Mario in the Infectious and Tropical Disease Institute. And uh, I was part of an interdisciplinary team uh, at the time and a program assistant for a service learning program. And um, with that um, that first experience, um, it was both an opportunity um, to do applied research uh, within the community as well as uh, to experience service learning um, with uh, students uh, who are in who are training to become college student personnel uh, administrators uh, and um, to work in higher education and I think it's a great example um, that Mario was saying that within the program uh, brings in people from all different disciplines and there's both a role and an opportunity um, for them to contribute and to learn as part of the program. Um, well, one of the activities uh, that we did was in one of the, the local schools and um, we had the opportunity to contribute to uh, building uh, a Chagas resistant, um, sort of architecturally sound uh, community center, uh, and to work um, side by side with members of those communities and uh, to contribute to some of the day to day activities in the school. And um, you know, the the teachers had asked you know for our group to lead some kind of ec- extracurricular activities um, with the students, um, and. You know, we had this wealth of knowledge of students who work in sports administration and student affairs, mm-hmm. and um, they did choreographed dances and uh, scavenger hunts, and all of this is without, um, you know, everyone speaking the same language as one another, but they're excellent communicators, um, and it was an, a really wonderful chance to create relationships amongst the communities, and, and again, for everyone to really sort of contribute some of their skills and interests um, and assets within the program. Uh, it was it was it was powerful um, mm-hmm. again from a relational standpoint um, and and relationships are really important as part of this program. Yeah. I mean, as Mario was saying, they've been working in these communities you know for a better part of twenty years um, and and relationships matter um, and uh, and it's an an important part of um, who we are when we are there that um, we really can cultivate um, those meaningful relationships. Mm-hmm. So, keeping on that theme of relationships, Mario, one of the—I mean, when I when I visited, I I think what blew me away was the way that this initiative has matured over the years. That has created relationships, and you alluded to this between uh, Ohio University faculty and students, and students from multiple other universities. And I think that those multiple universities coming together has raised the stature of the work being done in in very significant ways. One of our most important partners, and in, in this as near as I can tell, but but please correct me, is the Pontificate Catholic University in Quito, Ecuador, where uh, OU and and Puse, the the Pontificate Catholic University, have created actually a building um, that helps support the activities of the infectious and tropical disease research being done. Can you describe that building? And, you know, you were literally almost a chief architect of this. How do you think this building is setting a stage for the type of activities that will be undertaken through this initiative? Yeah, that's an excellent question. (laughs) (laughs) Because I love to talk about uh, these. And perhaps the way to to better talk about these is to look at the... uh, reflect on this development through my own uh, uh, my own story, all right? So when I came to the United States, I came to get training as a scientist. And I never intended to stay in the United States. And this is a story that repeats itself many times, and, you know, it's sometimes labeled as a brain drain. I, so I didn't come with, with the objective of staying here, but rather I wanted to get training and then go back to Ecuador to... Uh, you know, to do research. And I I got my PhD, and when it was time to uh, go back, uh, the sad realization, and it was a realization that was not sudden, was over time uh, clearer and clearer, that there weren't any institutions in Ecuador that could use the type of professional that I had become. I was uh, a PhD in molecular biology, immunoparasitology, 
Uh, and, you know, I could go back to Ecuador and be a businessman, but that was not my passion. You know, if I wanted to be a businessman, I would have done something else. So when I started my professional career at Ohio University as a faculty member, I set out to create that very infrastructure that was lacking. Because with the lack of infrastructure to do research and the lack of training programs, uh, there was a real need for the, the type of people that could generate the knowledge that would inform public policy, that would be able to evaluate what was going on, both from the standpoint of looking at what was needed, what was missing type of thing, but also trying to be very proactive on building something. So uh, one of the first things that I uh, did was work with Ohio University and Pontifical Catholic University of Ecuador in uh, establishing this agreement for cooperation that stands uh, today. You know, it's uh, 20, uh, 20 years in the, in the making, but it is going strong. And that was for, to establish a laboratory. And so that laboratory started working with projects at the beginning were very specific projects, as I mentioned, related to Chagas disease, and then it started growing. And we started getting funding and getting uh, noticed by multinational organizations like the World Health Organization, Pan-American Health Organization. And that led to connections and networking and uh, the development of uh, grants to attract funding from the National Institutes of Health, from the National Science Foundation, from the European Union, from NGOs in the States, from NGOs in Ecuador, from the Ecuadorian government, and so on and so forth. So as our group grew, we saturated the space that we initially occupied, and so we grew into a larger lab. You know, we converted the next classroom into a lab, and the next classroom into a lab, and the next classroom into an insectary, and so on and so forth, to the point where we saturated the capacity of the Catholic University campus in Quito. So this was around 19, uh, 2008. And they, our partners, as well as our people in Ohio University, uh, were very conscious about the success that we had had, right? And all of these international networks that were supporting our work and part of our work, so they decided to invest in this new facility. Uh, fast forward to 2016, and we put together this marvelous, beautiful building that is located in the new campus of Catholic University near, uh, near uh, Quito in the Valley of Nayon. Perfect weather all time. <laughs> it is about as beautiful as the best day in May you mm -hmm. can uh, think of. And the building is uh, 100,000 square feet uh, of research dedicated facility. It has laboratories for... Uh, uh, bench research, or what is sometimes referred to as wet labs. It also has a dry research space for researchers that do not need laboratories, but rather need an office and a space to meet and to host different types of activity. It has a clinical uh, research suite. It has uh, what is probably one of the largest, if not the largest, uh, insectary in uh, North and South America. Uh, and we right now host uh, many species of vectors that are related to uh, Chagas disease, also Zika, uh, dengue, uh, uh, yellow fever, uh, malaria. We uh, have uh, laboratories uh, uh, that are uh, populated by students from Catholic University and students also that come from all universities to have uh, uh, experiential learning experiences both in the labs with the researchers as well as cultural experiences in the context of Ecuador. So with this facility, we want to be an international platform for scientific engagement that creates opportunities to advance knowledge and enrich education and finally, you know, improve health because we need to do something because of a larger type of goal. It's not, needs to be a, a something that, that really transcends time and, and helps uh, the people. So we have five uh, uh, different approaches with this facility. One is that we want to address complexity. You know, the easy stuff has already been done. Now is the difficult stuff. How do you work in diseases of poverty? How do you work in these really complex biological and, uh, and social systems? Also to foster interaction because the people 
in the different places, in the different geographies, in the different institutions, yearn for connections, for the relationships that Diana was talking about, uh, to enrich both the educational experience as well as to enrich the possibilities to conduct research and to put together programs. Another of our um, overarching goals is to generate opportunities. So these opportunities need to be mutually beneficial. You know, that is the best type of collaboration with everybody wins. Mm -hmm. So if we have a researcher that specializes in a particular area, and that researcher can use the facilities, the connections, the networks that we have created uh, to propel his or her career forward with that through the implementation of, uh, of research, the generation of data that gets this uh, faculty member uh, you know, published and, uh, and helps in getting tenure or getting more grants or whatever, that is a win situation. If we build within that context a collaboration with a faculty member that is, has a, a related interest in our partner institution or our partner institutions, then both of them can add and synergize and make this uh, a better uh, outcome for both of them. And in this process, they involve the students. The students learn from the mentors. They learn from the methodologies. They learn how to collaborate across uh, geographical divides, and that helps the students. And if these programs and projects have components that relate to community uh, activities of real community problems, then, then the community directly benefits from that. And the benefits are very interesting. You know, some of the benefits are, are very clear. You know, you, the, the group uh, uh, with the community members build this community center. That is very, you know, concrete. There is a building and it's beautiful and it's marvelous and it stays with, keeps the bugs away. And that mm -hmm. is great. But also it has a psychological effect on the population because poverty drives people down. Is like you're down and you're beaten, and when you're beaten, you're beaten some more. And you believe that you're not worth it, that you're not good enough, that nobody should pay attention. You know, is a is a community-wide depression. You know, and individual depression as well. I mean, people are worried about you know what I'm gonna eat. You know, how I'm gonna go to the doctor. That types of real things. But as a community, that also creates a a, a sense of doom a sense of hopelessness. So the moment that you have individuals f that are different from you coming and showing an interest on learning about you, th then the communities realize that they are unique, that they are powerful, that they are actually in control of their lives and they can have control on their lives and they find that voice, that, that, that self-respect that they have lost and they find the voice and then they feel confident so that they can go to the local authorities and not beg for services, but demand services from the government and the representatives and work with them. And, and they learn to negotiate and negotiate in a way that is not unlike what we do, you know? <laughs> when, uh, when I go to uh, visit my friends in the dean's offices, I usually go with my hand uh, open, you know, and say, hey, can I have some funds to do this and that? but I never come as a, as a principal with my other hand empty. What I say is, hey, listen, we have been able to do this. We have this to offer. Would you like to contribute to that? And the same type of negotiation happens at, at the community level. If the community needs a road and they offer labor and, and you know food for the workers or whatever, that is powerful. And that helps them then come from these communal depression to community pride. And that transforms everything. You know, there's a couple of things that you said that I want to punctuate before we move on, because I think they're so important. The, the first is about the research facility. And you, you said the square footage. I'm going to kind of metaphorically describe it for listeners. If, if you think about going to a big shopping mall uh, and that shopping mall has one of the big uh, retail, you know, uh, department stores in it. The facility is about the size of maybe three times one of those is maybe the way I would think about it. So you can kind of get a sense of big Macy's or Nordstrom's or whatever. Three of those put together might be even a little bit smaller and not nearly as beautiful as the research facility that was created. And how do you create something like that? It's through sustained effort and showing success along the way. 
But I think one of the other things you underscored is that you're trying to allow everyone to win. And so it's not just paying for a building, but it's showing that the creation of that facility and what it represents is both the result, but also the promise of everyone winning from the work being done inside that facility. And so I think that's a really important thing. And Diana, I think it underscores something you said, where when you're engaging in academic service learning, it's it's done so with uh, with both a desire for you to get something out of it, but also a generosity that you want your partner to be able to say the same thing. Mm-hmm. And there's something else that uh, Mario mentioned that um, I wanted to draw attention to that really makes this program unique, um, and that is the the assets best assets based approach to working in communities that um, permeates the entire program and particularly the service learning endeavors. Um, you know, there's a there's a tendency even in the field of service learning to to focus on needs, you know, with the very best intentions. Exactly. And to you know, and to approach communities and find out what is it, what is it that you need so we can, you know, come in and give you what you need or work with you about what it is that you need. And this, um, this program really turns that inside out and approaches communities um, from this assets-based perspective, saying that this community is full of individuals with skills, abilities, gifts, resources to invest in their community, and how can we learn from one another um, and identify those assets and build a service learning project around those community assets. Um, and, and that's been a very foundational aspect of this program that also allows for this interdisciplinary collaboration because when you're really looking, um, you know, to drive a, a, you know, a community's agenda based on assets, you need to bring, you know, to draw on multiple perspectives to be able to, to build those um, creative ideas out. You know, a great example of that might be the actual community center and the, um, the, the, the store that has been set up. Mm-hmm. Do you want to describe that a little bit? Yes. Uh, so there's a, a women's cooperative um, in uh, the community of of Bea Maria, where this community center is located, uh, and um, the women um, started organizing rather informally, um, maybe five or six years ago, uh, and um, were interested in uh, selling some of the you know artisanal uh, active or artisanal crafts that they were putting together um, and uh, through um, sort of an asset mapping activity that happened in 2013 um, some of the women learned that there were other women in the community who were doing traditional weaving and they could learn and expand on those skills and abilities and um, sort of generate and create even more um, textiles and activities um, and artisanal crafts, and they now actually have a, a store inside the community center um, where they can bring people in to come in and see the crafts that they um, both um, make uh, and buy to be able to sell to create these sort of income-generating activities in the community. And it's in- entirely run and operated by the Women's Cooperative. So one of the I'm going to switch topics because that's just a great example. And, and the, the art that they produce is beautiful um, and makes very good gifts that you bring home for family members. Yes, it does. Um, I want to switch topics uh, so that we can get to a few other things before we run out of time. One of the things that we've said a couple different times is, is that this is interdisciplinary. And I want to bring some um, substance to that statement. So so I'm, I'm a person trained in communication, Mario. You're, you're a scientist. We really don't have very much in common academically. If you knew my biology grades, you would laugh, right? Um, and you're a very good communicator, so it's a little bit unequal in terms of what we bring to the table. Uh, so, so we shouldn't have very much in common, but yet when I went to Ecuador to be able to take part in learning about the projects going on, I immediately felt a connection, and, and it was because um, some of the individuals that I met down there um, have really embraced the importance of communication. So I use that as an example to illustrate the fact that 
You've talked about wet labs and a research facility, your background in science. And so there's obviously a scientific component to this. But there's also so many other tentacles to what has to happen for this to work that all of a sudden the field of, of communication becomes as, as important of a piece of the puzzle to create the picture of this as, as the scientist that's doing work in a wet lab. So can you talk about why – I guess how that interdisciplinary collective has emerged, why you think it's so important, and how it is that you keep all that organized, because there's so many different types of people that are involved in this. Well, as to the last part, I, I don't know. It's sort of, uh, you know, have to uh, be very creative and very flexible. One of the challenges that I have uh, found over the years is how to tell the story. You know, how do we effectively communicate to people that have not experienced this? And, and when I talk to my friends that are in the communicator, uh, communication arena, what they say is, well, you need to define your audience. What is your target audience? Who are you, how are you talking to? And that conversation is, is really interesting <laughs> because it says, okay, well, I really would like for people that have, uh, you know, uh, funding to give me money, right? So we can give us money collectively, right? Uh, so we need to talk to funders. And these funders could be philanthropic funders or it can be, you know, the National Institutes of Health. So we need to tell the story to them. Uh, wait, but we also need to be able to tell the story to our university administrators because our university administrators need to see the value on these and be able to give uh, faculty release time and, you know, approve internal grants and all of that stuff and, and, and stamp our crazy proposals uh, <laughs> so they can go forward. Okay, so wait, wait. But we need to talk with the government people because they are the ones that uh, want to approve or give us our permits to work in country. They are the ones to need to be on board from the beginning. So whatever we come up with is not just a crazy academic uh, idea that ends up in an academic paper and why not, but to give these a chance to become public policy, they need to be involved and they need to feel invested. They need to feel, you know, they, they need to engage in the process. Okay, so that's good. Oh, wait, students. We need to attract the students, right? And, and what students? The students from different areas and undergraduates and graduates and medical students and PhD students and sociologists. And, oh, wait, we also need to attract faculty. And faculty have other issues, other needs, you know, tenure, uh, time release, uh, summer contracts, and all of that. So how about the public? When I talk about Chagas disease just at the beginning of this interview, 90% of the people, or maybe more, didn't know what I was talking about. And maybe they're going to be curious enough and they're going to, you know, go and Google it and, and find some more. Mm -hmm. But most people don't know about that. So how do we tell the story? And how do we tell the story is, is critical. Because you need to create pieces that can tell a general story for everybody. But you also need to... to to tell stories that are more specific, that are going to get the molecular biologist that is specialized in splitting genes and finding out a population genetic analysis so that we can have that piece of research and understand how this population of bugs that are here move to this other place and transmit the disease. That is critical basic knowledge. At the same time, we need to be able to talk to the sociologist to, because we need to understand what are the social contexts, what are the drivers of this and that. And we need to talk with the psychologists so that we can understand from the perspective of the community members what is the impact of learning that you have a deadly disease. And we need to talk with the architects, you know. And so very specialized and very generalized. And that is a challenge. And that is a mm -hmm. challenge that I don't know how to uh, deal with <laughs> except by, you know, engaging with communicators and and that is one of the magic uh, pieces of this that you know the story that we are putting together is so powerful that it inspires people mm -hmm. Diana do you want to add yeah I was going to 
mention inspiration, and so you literally took the word out of my mouth. And I think that the project is inspiring, and that is why individuals continue to stay involved um, and to invest and to, and they feel like they are a part of the story. You know, I've been a part of the story for the past five years. Um, and uh, in terms of being able to communicate that work, um, you, you need people who are part of the story um, and you know, continue to stay connected to all of their partners. You know, um, you know, Mario and I work in different offices um, across campus, and um, I'm teaching you know, a service learning class as part of the project this summer, and I'm, so I'm communicating with students. I'm communicating with his staff. I'm communicating with all of our partners at Catholic University in Ecuador on a weekly basis and then reporting back what our, we say in our meetings back <laughs> here on campus. So um, I think continuing to stay to stay motivated and inspired and to understand that you, um, you know, me as an administrator, um, you know, I'm also part of a project that's much, much larger than myself. Um, and that is inspiring, given that it is making a difference in the individual lives of so many different people. You know, it strikes me that hearing both of you talk about that, that it really is getting all the different people that that are touched by this to understand that there's a common denominator cutting across the scientists, the community members, the administrators, the politicians, et cetera, et cetera, that is bigger than themselves. Mm -hmm. And how to capture that for listeners is really difficult, but I I think that I have a strategy here. Mm -hmm. I remember that when I was in Ecuador last summer that they were long days, and we weren't actually doing any work. We were just walking around talking to people, but they were long days. But we started the mornings with a chant. Mario, can you describe what that is and <laughs> explain why you do that? All right. So this came about from uh, th- this came about in uh, 2004 when we were training Ministry of Health personnel uh, in the newly formed National Chagas Disease Control Program of Ecuador. So uh, I invited a colleague uh, called Manuel Lluveras, and he uh, uh, was instrumental in setting up the malaria control programs in Africa. So he came, and as part of the training, he said, you know, it's really important to have something that everybody can identify with. That is, that is sort of like a, a mantra or a war cry that you all come together and do this. And so he showed us some examples of uh, what his uh, uh, other groups have done in Africa. And so we tasked all of the group, I mean, uh, that year we had more than 200 people uh, to come up with ideas for what our thing was going to be. And one of the field workers uh, from the malaria control program, uh, a field entomologist, came up with the mantra, which is, uh, translated to English into, with our work, no more Chagas in Ecuador. And in English, it doesn't rhyme very well, but in <laughs> Spanish, it does. And it's, con nuestra labor, sin Chagas, Ecuador. <laughs> so every morning, regardless of where we are, all of the team, and we're talking about 100 people in, in general, no, no, 90 to 100 people uh, in, the, in the summer program, come together at 6 a.m. and... Uh, that is a, a moment that we have to reflect in the activities from the previous day and what, has, what have we accomplished as a whole. Because sometimes, you know, you're so busy doing the, the little stuff that you don't see what everybody's accomplishing, mm-hmm. right? So uh, we talk about the challenges and, 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 the, and, and the accomplishments, and we talk about what is in store for, for that day. And then everybody gets together around four or five people that are every day chosen to do the first part of the chant. And then, uh, so they would say at the center, con nuestra labor, with our work, and then everybody would scream at the top of their lungs, no more chagas in Ecuador. <laughs> and we do it twice and only twice. And it's super nice because it energizes and brings everybody together and brings the sense of community, in the sense that we are working for the greater good, and we are not individuals that are alone, but we are, you know, together. And that is really powerful. 
it is a very powerful experience, uh, I have to say, even at 6 a.m., uh, but it's it 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 keeps everyone swimming in the same direction, and I think that's critically important, both on a daily basis, but also in helping you personally understand the narrative that is unfolding that you're a part of. Uh, I think it reinforces the reason for that narrative, and it's very important. I want to end our discussion um, by thinking about the future. So, uh, Mario, I'll, I'll tell you what your question is, so you can be thinking about it, and I'll turn to Diana. But I want you to think about what you think will be your dreams for how this program will evolve over the next several years and what you want to accomplish. So be thinking about that. Diana, I want to start by talking about your perspective on the future. You're actually conducting research um, for, for your own professional development and growth in Ecuador right now. What, what's the research project that you're doing and what is it you're trying to accomplish with it? Well, the research is really integrated into the project, and um, it's a collaborative research endeavor, um, and it's based on um, previous collaborative research um, in in Loja province, um, where the project has been unfolding um, for the past number of years. And the purpose of this research um, was really to create a baseline for community assets uh, to be able to inform the future action lines of the project. Um, and uh, we are starting a, a new chapter um, of the project in Manabi province um, that was affected by an earthquake uh, last spring. Um, and um, we're building new relationships in this um, community um, to start you know, a long-term research initiative. And uh, so th this summer uh, with um, you know, specifically the service learning students, but also with um, you know, faculty from the Center for Applied Psychology at Catholic University um, and their Ignatian Leadership Program. Um, we'll have um, students, faculty, and staff from both universities um, that will be engaged um, in sort of collecting this data with the, with the communities, um, looking at uh, community assets. We'll be doing asset mapping uh, in the community uh, and uh, creating capacities inventory and really delving into what are the interests and strengths um, and assets in this community to be able to inform the future service learning um, projects for you know the next you know five years. Uh, and this is a way to really ensure that you know, these projects are community-driven um, and, you know, really, you know, coming back to the mutually beneficial aspect um, of, of the project, that it's an opportunity for, for students to learn and engage, but also for the communities to really build resilience um, and, um, and to benefit in multiple ways from this collaboration. Your research project is going to be so instrumental in providing, you know, strategic information uh, for everyone, all the partners involved. So, obviously the best of luck with, you know, getting it done. And um, you're going to have a challenge of how do you get the information out to the people that need to have it? Um, yes. So. Uh, well, it's a, thank goodness it is a collaborative effort. Yeah, yeah. Um, and there are so many uh, dedicated um, actors in this project. So I'm mm -hmm. not doing it alone. Uh, Mario, this is a 20-year program that's part of a 30-year institute. So obviously there's a long history behind this. Um and, and as we've described it over the course of, you know, 50 minutes or so, it obviously has a, a very deep maturity to what it's already accomplished. But yet I feel like we've only scratched the surface of what it can be. What, what do you want it to become? Well, you know, as I see into the future, I, I, I try to see into the future. I envision that this program is going to continue to expand and expand in terms of the partners and the types of activities that we conduct. You're absolutely right that we have just scratched the surface. We have a long way to go. You know, the world is increasingly interconnected. We are right now one click away from almost everywhere. And video conference, you know, uh, the, the connectivity is amazing. and. So this facilitates our ability to come together and combat disease also in an interconnected way. What we are doing right now in Ecuador is the same thing that needs to be done in, 
you know, Colombia or in Peru or in uh, uh, Ghana or in Nigeria or in uh, China, exactly the same type of challenges um, are present. So we need really to learn as a community, both academic community and, and practitioner community, how to work across these geographies and these, uh, these different cultural barriers that sometimes stops us from doing things and, and to distill the essence really of what, uh, what uh, should be done and have some parameters, loosely defined parameters that can be adjusted to the specific uh, needs at the different uh, places. So what I envision is that we will be able to attract many partners, both in academia and uh, NGOs and so on and so forth and governments to be able to work in these, uh, uh, these interconnected uh, development. And so let me end with an invitation to your listeners that many of them might be in the academic realm to you know, inquire about how to get involved and to see if their faculty and their students can partner with Ohio University uh, in this uh, endeavor because there is so much to do, so much good stuff uh, that we can do together. It's a great invitation, a great way to end. I think that, um, you know, for the listeners, uh, this is obviously a program that has a great deal of uniqueness to it and the way that it has grown over multiple decades and the resources that you've been able to accumulate, not only in terms of uh, like a new research facility, but also the people, the relationships that have been cultivated over time. And that can obviously seem daunting to someone that wants to create a program of their own. But I think the lesson to learn from this story, this narrative, is that it's, it's a long game. It's not a short game. And that long game is successful when you do take the time to develop the relationships with the people, the communities that you're in, and to marry that with your mission as an educator and as a scientist, as a researcher, whatever your role is. When you bring all that together, powerful things can happen. That's the story of this project, uh, but, but I think that's a story that other people can use as a roadmap for themselves. Uh, Mario, Diana, thank you so much for giving us your time today. This is a fascinating story. I hope that as this project evolves, that you can come back and talk about some of the specific things that have happened maybe after you get back from the trip this summer. Uh, and we hope to feature uh, this story as it, as it evolves um, over the course of time on Teaching Matters because it's so fascinating and touches so many people. Thank you very much, Scott. Thank you so much. And thank you for listening to Teaching Matters, produced by WOUB Public Media. You can always listen at woub.org backslash listen. We also are available through several popular podcasting applications, such as Google Play, iTunes, and NPR One. You can also contact staff of the podcast with ideas, questions, or comments through our Facebook page. Simply search for Teaching Matters Podcast on Facebook. Our audio engineer today was Adam Rich. I'm Scott Titsworth. Special thanks to Tim Vickers of Ohio University Center for Teaching and Learning for his assistance in producing this program on behalf of WUB Public Media. Thank you for listening and have a great day. Mm-hmm.